Hello and welcome to the Digital Agenda Podcast. I'm your host, Louise Stokes, and in this new series, we will be exploring issues relating to technology in the modern world. We will hear from industry experts with recordings from this year's Digital Agenda Power and Responsibility Summit. The insightful and thought-provoking discussions covered such diverse topics as data bias, the AI revolution, and profit for purpose. Welcome to episode four of the Digital Agenda podcast. This episode is on regulation and innovation. Regulation is often seen as constraining innovation. How can we protect innovation whilst ensuring ethical development and responsible use of data? What form of regulation is appropriate to ensure a trusted internet? And how can industry, government and the not-for-profit sector work together to achieve it? This week, we will hear a panel discussion straight from the Digital Agenda Power and Responsibility Summit. Our discussants are chaired by Richard Sargent, Chief Commercial Officer at Faculty, and the panellists are Johnny Hugel, Head of Research at Public, Heather Savory, Co-Chair at the UN Global Working Group for Big Data, Cheryl Stevens, MBE, Director of Identity and Trust at the Department of Work and Pensions, and finally, Chris Thorpe, Head of Technology at CAST. Now let's head straight to the stage to hear from Richard introducing the panel discussion. Tech is done and regulated in, in very different ways and I really look forward to the conversation and, uh, and the illustrations that the panel might bring to bear on how we can do this better from the perspective of, of government, multinational organisations, uh, third sector and, and civil society uh, and, uh, and start-ups as well. Uh, so without further ado, uh, the, the panel. Ladies and gentlemen, so uh, would you like to introduce yourselves and, uh, and say a, a little about perhaps uh, your overall perspective on, on this? Absolutely. So um, for those of you who have not um, seen me before, I'm sure there are people that I know. My name is Heather Savory. Um, I started as a tech entrepreneur. I've just spent four years at the Office for National St- Statistics doing as Director General for Data, where I did a data, digital and workforce transformation and I'm currently the co-chair of the United Nations Global Working Group on Big Data for Official Statistics. Um, So I have a very strong interest in um, all things technical, but particularly in data. I also, um, in a previous um, life, um, used to regulate surveyors. I I was a non-exec director for the Royal Institute of Child Surveyors, and I worked in biz on regulation for the government many years ago. So I, I have quite a, a deep interest in regulation and I, I, I find myself conflicted actually quite often because I'm a strong believer in the power of technology and the power of data and all the good that it can do. But equally, data in particular, because it's contextual, can actually um, be put to very poor purposes. So um, talking about open data, for example... I, I, I did some work actually for the government on as part of the... I used to chair the Open Data User Group and we were responsible for actually a lot of the data that the UK government is actually now releases as open data. And it was a huge struggle to get that data out of government. But one of the reasons for that is because you always have to think what purposes is, is it being put, put to. And I don't think that at the moment any of us have the answers. I think that there are many, many questions that we need to to consider when we think about how to regulate because you don't want to stifle innovation 
you don't want to stifle the, the better use of data. I mean, one of the reasons that I'm working with the UN is because the UN will have governance over the, the particular work that, that we're doing, which is around sharing data across the statistical and non-profit system to measure the SDGs better. There's 10 years to measure the SDGs. That's not actually very long. So I've got a little bubble that I can work in quite happily because I know that we are using data under the UN for ethical purposes. But the questions I ask myself, and I think society and each of you needs to ask yourself, is um, my classic example is, what is your bank doing with your data? So perhaps a provocation for us to look at data regulation, not just as, as power, but as purpose. Absolutely. That's fantastic. Have a Johnny. Hi, uh, I'm Johnny Hegel. Uh, I'm from a company called Public. Uh, we were set up a few years ago. And we do a number of things to, to help technology startups to work with government. Uh, it's a sector we call GovTech. And, and, and the main thing we do in it is we are an investor in, in European GovTech startups. So we have a portfolio of about 45 companies who in some way work with governments from kind of transport to traffic management to policing to health all across the, the public sector. So I guess our perspective on this is, is really coming from startups and having seen in quite practical terms what barriers we've come up with. I, I suppose the sort of biggest and most prominent one is probably GDPR, but there are a number of other areas of regulation we've kind of come up against with, with some of our companies. Do you see GDPR as a, an illustration of good regulation or bad regulation when it comes to tech and data? Yeah, I think that's a really interesting one and one we'll probably have to kind of tackle in a bit more depth. I think GDPR is probably one of those quite common areas of regulation, which is good regulation that has either not been properly implemented or still needs further work to be properly implemented. My view is that it's, it's broadly a good thing, and as I'll kind of, we can come to later, I think it's also kind of quite a strategic advantage for the European Union and, and positions us quite well for now. Um, but there are a number of challenges, and there, there, are, there have been a number of barriers that we've seen startups continue to face. Um, and it's, it's probably of no surprise to hear that people regularly complain that it kind of blocks out SMEs and startups and smaller, smaller businesses. And just before we go, yes. Joel, perhaps just one example, a specific example of a, a barrier related to GDPR that yeah, um, startups face? There, were, there are a number. So uh, I think a common complaint we hear is that um, when they're dealing with specific um, demands under GDPR, such as a subject access request, uh, what we'll, you'll tend to do is need to consult with a technology lawyer, probably, especially for the first time, and especially when we start looking at kind of fringe cases. Um, and things like this uh, are pretty easy for Google and Facebook, but are pretty challenging for smaller European tech startups and SMEs. Um, so kind of my perspective is that what government needs to do and what regulators need to do is when we're looking at things like this, which place demands on companies, right, the right kinds of demands, making sure that we have the right support tools, the right support systems to enable to do that. Lowering the cost of compliance. Yeah. Very good. Cheryl. Hi. Thank you. Um, I'm Cheryl Stevens. Um, I head the identity and trust team in the Department of Work and Pensions. Um, quite a broad remit, actually, um, in terms of of my interests. So um, I'm at the thorny end of where regulation goes wrong. Um, we serve around 22 million uh, customers, um, of whom, um, let's be blunt, none of them come to us because they want to. They come to us because something has happened in their life that means they need help with uh, bereavement, benefits, whatever that might be. Um, and I think as part of getting that help, um, we gather a lot of data, actually, 
from our customers. And I think increasingly, um, certainly over the last six months actually, the prevalence of the conversations around would we be willing to share that data um, is, is there. Um, and actually it goes to the, the trust of customers in government um, as opposed to the bank. Um, so I'd quite like to explore that in a bit more, more detail. And if you had perhaps one example to illustrate uh, a regulation might underpin trust in, in technology and data from your experience? Um, so I, I can give you an example of where regulation hasn't worked very well and has broken um, some of the trust. Um, so our identity solution across government, gov.uk verify, um, everybody's nodding, um, this isn't going to be a surprise. Um, it was a very high hurdle of identity um, proofing um, and it only works for around 25% of our customers uh, and that actually prevents a barrier to um, getting money that they need. Um, and that was grounded in a, a set of standards, regulations, policies, practices um, that actually was designed before the tech was designed. Um, and I'd, I'd hate to see us go back around that loop again. Very good. Thank you, Cheryl. Chris. Uh, so I'm Chris Thorpe. I'm a technologist. I work with an organisation called CAST. We're involved in an initiative called The Catalyst, which is to help uh, up to 40,000 charities take their first steps in digital transformation, greater resilience, and most importantly, better user-centric service delivery for those most at need in society. Um, ever increasingly, the charity sector is the, is the very sharp end of delivery of, of policy and services to the most vulnerable people that you were talking about. And so obviously we have a, a deep interest in protecting their needs and their, their data and their identities. Um, prior to that, I, I worked in tech startups. Um, so I came in very close um, contact with a regulation when I was at Mind Candy when we built Moshi Monsters, where we spent a year getting uh, compliance with a piece of American legislation called COPPA which protects children's privacy. And it made a better product from us doing that. Um, I'm delighted to see lots of people quite like the service de <laughs> delivery uh, assessment. Um, I was part of the very early team at, at GovUK. And, and so I've been interested throughout my career around standards, uh, how to make products that serve users better, but also are very compliant mm. and keep those users safe. That's super. And if there were an example or a particular problem in the area of uh, trust or, um, or compliance that you think regulation could uh, ferment or, or improve, mm. what would that be so, in the third sector? Uh, there's, there's a really good um, case. So there's a piece of legislation in America called HIPAA. And, and it's interestingly a case where regulation has led to innovation. Uh, so some people see HIPAA as a slightly draconian thing. It's the Health Insurance Privacy Act of America. And what it does is it mandates that you cannot keep medical data in the same data store as personally identifiable information. And it's led to uh, a large number of organisations uh, delivering these things called HIPAA-compliant faults, where sensitive medical data is, is kept separate 
and can only be joined by certain applications and certain <coughs> users of certain applications. And one of the things that we're exploring at the moment with, with the Catalyst is whether this has applicability to the third sector, mm. where there is an enormous amount of very sensitive information about the most vulnerable in society. So people who are survivors of domestic abuse, uh, people who are seeking asylum, uh, children at risk of abuse, uh, children with unusual medical complaints. And um, that's to address the risk of data leakage and loss and sharing. It, it's to address that, but it's also to enable things. So the sector is actually very good at understanding risks to these people because it deals with them and it understands the sensitivity. And so in lots of cases, it, is, it isn't actually storing this data. And it's useful performance and impact data, and it's useful data to start understanding trends. And so in lots of cases, the data is not being stored because of the risks of storing it. And actually, if we can create a better environment for that data storage, where data can be shared with trusted partners. I'm thinking about things like local authorities mm. and the NHS. So often uh, charities are delivering uh, medical services or mental health services on behalf of the NHS and on behalf of local authorities. If we can create an environment where um, we can generate these applications that allow trusted organisations to also access the data, will improve the quality of that data capture and improve the quality of use of it over time. So I think it, it could have a very positive effect if we could have a similar sort of piece of legislation around very sensitive data around sensitive individuals that, that's similar to HIPAA. Fantastic. Well, as you, uh, I'm sure you'll agree, fantastic panel. And we'll come to the audience for questions. So if you have got a question in your mind, do, do jot it down and we will try to get to you, the audience, before the end of this. But uh, it strikes me that this is an area where there aren't particularly polarised positions. There's nobody uh, who is shouting for worse regulation. Lots of, of uh, you know, folks who... Uh, yeah, we heard from the minister earlier. We've got perspectives from uh, multinational governments, from uh, from government, from civil society, from tech. We all want good regulation. What stands in the way? What What are the reasons why we find this difficult? There are too many facets to this problem. If you think about mm. it, data is pervasive. Data is everywhere. I actually think that if anything, we are underregulated. Mm. Um, and the reason I say that is because it's very, very difficult for people who want to get better, make use of data to decide what they can and can't do. Now, GDPR is a huge step forward, but really GDPR, it just scratches the surface. If you, if you think about, OK, that's, that's about what does Tesco's club card do with my personal information, etc., etc. So there, there are two things that, that I would like to say for people to think about. So the first one is... Um, the challenge of go that government has in this country. So Cheryl was talking about Verify. The problem that we have is that when we get onto our laptop at home and we talked about the cookies coming up and you clicking yes, or you go onto Google and you click yes, then as an individual, you click on that yes because you want to get to something, because you want to Google, you want to look something up, you want to go onto Facebook, whatever it is. What always strikes me, having spent years in government in various different, in and out of government, in different guises and different roles, 
is that as a member of the public, and I include myself in this, I've never really appreciated what the government does. So we will say, OK, I'll click and Google, you can have my data. And then years later, we say, well, we don't really like what they're doing with the data. But what we don't do when we think about public services is, I believe, we sort of take them for granted. And so there's, a, there's this sort of perception that we don't want the government to be able to use our data when I think that the government and governments generally take more care with mm. the data, are more open and transparent about what they're using the data for. And so I think there's something in that whole system there that, that we, it's, it's not so much a regulatory issue, it's more of a, a perception and cultural issue and a communication issue to just remind people that if you want a service from the government, the government can't actually operate unless it knows who you are, where you are, etc., etc. So, so I think a lack of understanding, standing in the way. A of lack of that. appreciation that you know you're, you're giving your data to get something back, but don't forget that 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 you're also getting something back in terms of public service delivery. Right. Yeah. It's just that because the street lights run in the street, we don't really think about it, do mm. we? Mm. Well, I have a, a few views on sort of why being a successful regulator is so challenging. Maybe I'll, I'll just give sort mm. of two. Um, I think it's worth thinking about which regulators people tend to think are successful and, and why that is. Mm. So everyone always talks about the FCA as being a successful regulator. Uh, we tend to get pretty positive response about MHRA for our health tech companies um, in the sort of medicine space. Um, and I think sort of thinking about what are the sort of common features of those regulators as opposed to others that maybe haven't been so, so successful. I think number one is that they're very openly kind of market-led, really engage with the market a lot. The FCA through the sandbox, MHRA are very open about trying to engage with the market and have a number of different support bodies to help you do that, like AHSNs, NIAs, anyone in the health space will kind of recognize these things as, as ways to kind of really try and push new products into quickly being tested and, and validated. Um, so I think quite often unsuccessful regulators will fail to really engage with mm. kind of the cutting edge of what is happening in, in markets. That's from big companies who are developing new services and new market entrants. Um, and then the second challenge I think in the UK is that there is quite a lot of overlap between different, especially tech and digital regulators. So we have the ICO, we have Ofcom, we have uh, the, a number of new sort of quasi-regulatory bodies coming out of DCMS. We have kind of all of these, many of these challenges that the uh, transport regulator will face will fundamentally be data and digital problems. Um, and I think there needs to be maybe a sort of clearer delineation in terms of where regulatory responsibilities lie. Mm. Very good. Cheryl? Yeah, I think just picking up something you, you said there, Johnny, actually, there's um, a whole host of reasons why I think um, regulations don't necessarily land well. Mm. So I think they work um, depending on the context. Um, so I think broad regulations for a number of sectors actually are always going to... Um, hit snags, hit bumps in the road, um, because you can't design something that is suitable for everything. And there's a transparency issue for me in terms of if we, if we admitted that um, as a regulatory body or as government, that actually there isn't a one-size-fits-all, there will be bumps in the road for these types of people, um, that's a much better starting position than the mandation of something that then we find, um, particularly looking at you, Chris, we find at the sharp end um, doesn't work for everybody. Um, but you've got to find that out yourself. Um, 
but we know this in advance. So I think that transparency of um, how the regulations will work, uh, the context in which they will work, and actually, more honestly, the context in which we'll have difficulty um, implementing. Mm -hmm. And is there any particular innovation, Chris, you gave a, perhaps a couple of examples mm -hmm. earlier on, that is really inhibited by the lack of regulation, the fact that uh, it's not possible to do these things. I, I think, uh, so I, I run an AI company and in the financial services space, a lot of the use of AI doesn't happen because of the need for explainability and the risks that firms take to their boards with uh, their reputations and, and the wider market if they can't explain the decisions that they're coming to is high. And so there we see perhaps regulation that can explain how you can get to explainable AI would drive innovation and would drive the uptake of, of AI. I, I wonder if there are any other examples of where regulation can really be the friend of, of innovation for technology and can drive forward adoption. Um, it's a good question. I think I'd like to be optimistic about it, especially in the commercial sector. I'm less so. Um, it sounds ironic since I spent a lot of my life in technology startups. I think lots of technology startups um, play very fast and loose with regulation. There's still a dangerously large amount of ask for forgiveness, not permission. And that's enabled by the way they're funded. It's enabled by, and this is no disrespect to an organization here who's a funder, but I think a lot of uh, venture capitalists are almost encouraging organizations uh, to not be as compliant with the regulations as they should be, especially in early stages. Fantastic, we have the makings of a disagreement on the panel. <laughs> no, not necessarily, not necessarily. But Johnny, I think, uh, can, I, can I just sort of carry on through a tiny yeah. bit into the, the charity sector, which is um, there is a burden around regulations. There is always a burden. And one of the things that, that we hope to do is to reduce that burden and to work with regulators and understand how to deliver training into the sector, how to um, ensure that there are enough data competent people within organisations, which I think is a, is a big problem. You know, we have quotas for office first aiders and fire marshals. Should we not have quotas for people who have an understanding of data and privacy and what to do with it and the regulation around it? And so I think, you know, there's this tension between um, shareholder value and compliance with regulations that I think we need to look at very openly mm. within the tech sector. And uh, you often hear that we should be more like Silicon Valley in the UK. I'd actually counter that with saying, hell no. I'd like us to be us. Mm. I'd like us to be better than Silicon Valley and look after people's interests better and play better with regulators and play better with people's data. I, I think that's a really interesting perspective, particularly in the context of uh, a sort of global competition where the UK is trying to compete against China and America and perhaps not just in tech, but in, in other professional services that the UK has a world-leading reputation in is its trust that underpins a lot of the confidence that consumers around the world have in UK and British services. And, and that's something perhaps that is a competitive edge as well as being uh, an ethical and, and moral vector for importance. 
Um, I, I wonder if we can come just to see whether there are any questions in the audience. I have plenty more, but a quick show of hands if there are any questions that we could just gather a, a selection of and, and put to the panel to make sure that we're answering any questions on your mind. Hi there, this question is probably aimed at Cheryl. Um, we've seen how country like Estonia can give power back to the people and give, um, give them a sense of their own identity and control it uh, successfully, 98% engagement. What's the problem? Why can't we get there? You mentioned Verify. Um, what's stopping us doing that? So in the we, same we can see what good looks like. Why, why is it all so difficult? Yes, please. Hello, Claire Levens um, from Internet Matters. My question is more about um, online safety and the use of data. So the age-appropriate design code that ICO are uh, coming out with very shortly um, creates a whole uh, set of challenges for, uh, for companies uh, and, and the motivation behind it is to make the internet safer for children particularly. And one of the debates that seems to be going on in the sector at the moment is whether that might be okay for the big companies but for smaller companies where actually more young people might be on those platforms, it's just too hard. And I'm interested in the panel's views on whether safety should be a universal standard or whether size matters in this instance. Fantastic. It sounds, if I understand you uh, correctly, a, a question also related to that burden of compliance. The yes, that, indeed, yeah. yeah. Fantastic. Any reflections? Uh, Estonia can do it. Why can't we? And yeah. uh, you know, isn't isn't you know this notion of regulation uh, noble, but actually really hard for, for smaller players to comply with? Anything? Yeah. So I'll take the the Estonia question. Thank you um, for raising that. It's um, I often find myself wishing that I was head of identity in Estonia um, <laughs> rather than uh, rather than the UK. Um, so the, the key thing with Estonia, actually, we've met them with them a number of times, is their citizens really trust their government. And that's the key. There is a, you know, there's a mandated identity card system in Estonia that, that clearly helps. Um, but it, it really is as, as simple as that. They trust that the information they give to their government will be used in the right way. Um, they absolutely trust that um, their payments at the end will be right or that the thing they are trying to do will be protected um, in the right way um, and it creates a really high high take up and we just we just don't have that in the UK. Heather just to come on top of yeah, that. Yeah so just to, to reinforce that I mean this this is what I was sort of talking about earlier and if you look across the world I mean one of the challenges with data because we, we, we can't regulate data effectively if we on a, on a, a, a geographic basis. You know, we're, we're in a virtual world with data. If you look across the world, the cultural differences in attitudes towards the use of personal data are unbelievably diverse. So in Scandinavia, you know, if any of you want, met somebody here, got their card or exchanged... Uh, because you wouldn't be passing cards, of course, because you're all digital. <laughs> but if you exchanged email addresses, you could then... You, if you're in Scandinavia, you can go and Google that person. You can find out where they live, where they work, and what they're earning, because they have an open society. And, and so there, is a, there are some really big issues here, which, which are around... Most people, um, I think, when they think about it, think, well, it wouldn't be a bad idea. But the problem is, this is, a, this is probably a 30-year-old 
you know, political discussion um, at the heart of, you know, election-winning politics as to do we want a national ID card? Yeah. So we say in the UK, no, because politicians, they've tried to do it several times over the years and they've all backed off because of public opinion. But then most of you here will understand because you're in technology that... Essentially, I may not have an ID number, but actually I've got about 15. Mm, You know, I've got my driving licence number, I've got my passport number, I've got my NHS number. So somewhere there, I think, lies Mm. madness, actually. And 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 we could make things so much more efficient if we could just move that (laughs) debate forward. That that conversation about trust is is so textured because it's often trust to do what and trust... Uh, you know, at what time? Um, so uh, let's um, let's come on to the question, the question. yeah, about uh, compliance. And perhaps Johnny, maybe start yes. with you. Uh, uh, presumably, uh, you know, you've got thoughts about this, but perhaps not just you know whether the costs of compliance are, are too high or not. But what can we do to bring these costs down to make sure that? Uh, you know, we don't have to make some trade-off between uh, ethics and, uh, and innovation, but we can have the two together. Yeah, I think my view is that the, the, the role of the modern-day regulator should be to enable all sorts of different companies to comply with the reg- regulation, primarily by providing the right kind of digital infrastructure as well as the right regulatory infrastructure. And I, I just think that reflects a sort of broad shift towards what should regulators be doing in our markets and how how should they be supporting their growth. So, and that, what that means in this context and indeed any context is what we really need is the right digital tools to allow companies to do this quickly, cheaply and affordably. Um, and what we need is for ICO, Ofgem, every regulator to, to think about what its market's data challenges are and how it can, it can support them. So for Ofgem, that will look like how can it provide the right kind of data infrastructure so that companies can quickly and easily share energy data? And then how can Ofgem itself then think about what it can do with that energy data to allow and enable new regulation? For for this, it it seems like a a similar challenge. Uh, And if we take this example of of age verification or or consent, is it the job of the regulator to have digital teams that can provide those services Mm -hmm. internally? Or is it the job of the regulator to partner with uh, with uh, private sector organisations that can provide that? What, what sort of regulators are you looking for? I, th- I think it's a combination of both, right? And these are going to be important pieces of, of national digital infrastructure, and those tend to be delivered in-house. But there will definitely be times where partnering with private sector companies will make sense. In fact, there'll be times where partnering with companies like faculty will make sense when we need to, you know... All the time. You, sure. All the time. Um, but, you know, where we can develop those right tools to, to allow these things to be automated quicker, cheaper. Um, going back to GDPR, an example is, um, you know, if you want to ask Sainsbury's to forget you from their databases, and indeed you want to go through every single company that has data over you, that's going to be burdensome for you. It's going to be burdensome for the companies. There's going to be a bunch of third-party companies that have data on you that Sainsbury's won't be able to do anything about. What we really need is a tool that can automate those kinds of SAR, you know, those subject access requests. Um, it will be better for everyone. And, the, you know, these projects are expensive and they're difficult, but I think that is the way that the regulator should sort of be moving towards. Mm. And that presumably is a real challenge for the skills and people yes. in the regulators <laughs> yeah. as well. Mm. Yeah, I think, though, just... Just to sort of sure. come in on, on the back of that from a kind of government perspective. So DWP is one of the biggest 
government departments, alongside HMRC, there are many, many smaller departments who are trying to do a digital transformation. Um, and where the service standards um, did really well, um, looking at you, Chris, give you some kudos for this, um, was not only did they say what you had to do, there was a how you should do it and some tooling that goes with it and a real transparency of, and by following all of those things, you will then play a part in this assessment at the end. So we won't assess you, you will be with us doing an assessment and then we will give you a response that helps you improve. Mm. And those responses that help you improve actually will go back into the tooling Mm. to see if we can catch these things earlier in the process. Um, And that worked for big government departments who actually we've got a quite big digital team. We could have done that ourselves. But actually the really small department, so taking your point, does size matter? I don't think size does matter if we get all of the component parts right. I think the blunt tool of this is what you need to do um, is actually what's creating the problem um, size-wise. Thank you. Can I just Chris. come in on a tiny bit? Um, I'm delighted that you feel that way, that it does level the playing field. And I, I agree with what you both said. I think the other way that we should think about levelling the playing field is around taxation. So the reason why there is inequality between big organisations and small organisations is the fact that the big organisations, because of the cult of shareholder value, will do anything that they can that is legal to avoid contributing fully to society. And we need to look at this a bit more closely. I'm probably being a bit harsh on big organisations, and there are some that are very good. But it has trickle-down effects. Like, less taxation means less money for public services, which means that small charities at the blunt end get less money to deliver them. And so the the burden of uh, any form of regulation is more keenly felt with them. Thank you. We're running low on time, and I just want to ask whether there's any one last question from the audience. I've got a question down here. Anybody else? One, could I take these two together, please? If you could snap your fingers and have a new regulation today, what would it be? Oh, what a great finishing question. We will certainly come to your answers there. Mine's very much related. I'm Claire Donaldson from the National Data Strategy, so I'm heading up the engagement. So I couldn't not say um, if it would be great to be able to get in touch with you all so that you could share with us regarding regulation and what the National Data Strategy could do to help your your sectors and your organisations. Fantastic. And perhaps uh, channeling Sana uh, Karagani, uh, my ask would be that you engage with that. I think it's an important... <laughs> important initiative. Uh, Fantastic. So uh, national data strategy and then your one new regulation. Okay. Heather. Well, I'm going to cheat. I don't have one new regulation, but what I would like to do is to change the way we regulate following up on the discussion we've had here because there there is a too much of a gulf between what you want to achieve and what technology is available to achieve it. And coming to the lady at the back, um, you know, great sympathies if you're running a small organisation and you're regulated, and there's no tools for you to do that. And, and I'll just quickly say this is particularly around the issues that we need to solve around um, data privacy, use of PII, personally identifiable information. 
governments, and not just our own government, need to engage with the technology companies in order to regulate in a way which is implementable. Very good. Thank you, Heather. Johnny, final word. Uh, yes, I think I would quite like to see a sort of national regulatory strategy that uh, allowed us to look at all of these very important disparate um, initiatives and to kind of make sure that we're covered across every single important tech uh, sector and every kind of area that we need to be regulated and to very clearly delineate who's regulating what, why, and what are the different regulatory instruments we're doing to, to achieve the, the outcomes. Bring order and purpose to chaos Precisely. and overlap. Yeah. Very good. Um, I think just picking up on, on Heather's point, PII is the regulation for me, um, specifically around the monetization of PII. Um, when you deal with the customers we deal with, actually often all you've got left is your PII, mm -hmm. and they will sell it um, because they're desperate. Um, so yeah. I'd like to see something around that. Very helpful. Thank you. Chris? Um, National Data Strategy, please do get involved. I was at one of the round tables. It was wonderful. Um, the only thing I'd like to reiterate is, could we have societal wellness as an outcome rather than just economic things? I know we're enthralled to GDP, but there are other measures. Um, absolutely on PII. Mm -hmm. And I'd add to that about sensitive data, the sort of data that um, has a massive impact if there's a breach. Yeah. Um, and creating a regulation that would allow organisations that deal with those most vulnerable people to be able to have a continuous chain of care um, where in a secure, transparent yeah. and, and, and very user-centric in its best way yeah. mode. Very good. Thank you. On the eve or on the edge of Brexit, moving from GDP to wellness might be uh, a welcome shift <laughs> of, uh, of emphasis. I'd like to uh, ask you to join me in thanking the panel for their contributions. Thanks to all our speakers for such an insightful discussion about regulating the tech sector. Success for regulation will be a serious challenge and it's also so important to consider how government can work with business to ensure innovation will never damage society. Next week, we'll be hearing from Catherine Mayer, who we've heard from before in previous episodes. And she'll be sitting down with Caroline Criado Perez, who's a feminist campaigner and author of best-selling book, Invisible Women, Exposing Data Bias in a World Designed for Men. Catherine and Caroline sit down and talk about the world of data, bias, confidence, challenges and opportunities. We look forward to joining you. Thanks again for tuning into the Digital Agenda podcast.